right to free speech or whether it be visiting rights or women's rights or civic rights or workers' rights or patient rights or bill of rights or Mr. Right. No, no, not the last one. (laughs) There's just something right about having rights. There's something right about protecting my rights, about exercising my rights, about enforcing my rights. It's almost ingrained into us. It's, It's almost part of who we are. We're very jealous of our rights, all of which, of course, makes the chapters that we've been looking at together over the last few weeks from 1 Corinthians very challenging because these chapters really cut against that instinct that my rights are right. Instead of the way of rights, God in these chapters has been calling us to the way of love, to the way of slavery, to the way of sacrificial service, to the way of Christ. And so these chapters challenge us. They challenge how right rights really are. And that's also true of our passage tonight. Now you probably guessed, but our passage tonight is a, is a challenging and a tricky one. From my preparation on this uh, passage, here's a sample of what I've found in just about every book I've looked at. Quoting, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 16, has some features that make it one of the most difficult and controversial passages in the Bible. That's encouraging, isn't it? <laughs> but it is a difficult passage, and so we've got to, up, we've got to be upfront about that. People who love Jesus and love the Bible and have great wisdom disagree about lots of things in this passage before us tonight. And so I need to be very careful and very humble as I bring it to you. That's a challenge for us. But the greater challenge, the greater challenge, I reckon, is not so much the intellectual challenge, but the spiritual challenge. The challenge to that notion that my rights are right. It's the same challenge present throughout all these chapters. The challenge to put aside the way of rights and instead to pursue the way of love, the way of Christ. And so, look, we need to pray and ask God to humble us before him and his word. We need to ask for his help as we seek to listen to his word together. So let's do that once more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would humble us before your word tonight. Father, we want to be clear in what you say. We want to understand it clearly and we want to obey it. And I guess, Father, in a sense, we're challenged on both fronts. Help us just in our understanding, but also help us in our obedience, Father. For we want to serve Jesus and we want to walk in the way of love. We want to walk in his way. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well... Um, There's an outline on the inside of the bulletin which uh, hopefully will be of help to you as we go through. And I'll be referring to a couple of Bible verses and things along the way which you can just mark down, maybe look up later if you'd like. Yet again in our passage tonight, we we ought to notice, get a sense of deja vu really, because yet again the Apostle is confronting a problem, an issue within the Corinthian church. We've seen this repeatedly throughout the entire letter, haven't we? Whether it's been divisions and quarrelling, or attitudes towards Paul's ministry and message, or immorality, or lawsuits between believers, or marriages and singleness, or eating food sacrificed to idols. It's the character of this letter that Paul has been responding to particular issues and problems within the Corinthian church. And our passage tonight is no different. Although it starts quite positively, doesn't it? 
um, in verse 2 there, Paul praises the Corinthians for remembering him and holding on to the teachings that he passed on to them. It's clearly not all bad, although in verse 3, he turns to yet another issue that needs sorting out. What's the issue this time? Well, at first glance, it's how to dress for church. In particular, how to dress your head. It would seem that in in the uh, gathering of the church in Corinth, in their church meetings, and in particular when people were praying and prophesying, in their gatherings, at least some of the men had their heads covered and at least some of the women had their heads uncovered. That's clearly the issue, at least at face value. You can see it in almost every verse of our passage, the issue of whether the head is covered or uncovered. But, just like we've seen in the rest of the letter, the surface issue is merely the symptom of a deeper, more significant problem. It's a problem, really, that we've been noticing as well all the way through the letter. Throughout the letter, it's been clear that the Corinthians are puffed up with their spiritual knowledge, their spiritual freedom. They suffered from a spiritual arrogance that led them to think that they could do anything. In fact, one of the big slogans in the Corinthian church seemed to be, everything is permissible. It's a slogan that Paul repeatedly quotes back to them in the letter. So back in chapter 6 and verse 12, when he's dealing with the issue of sexual immorality, chapter 6, verse 12, he quotes them by saying, everything is permissible for me. But then he corrects them by adding, but not everything is beneficial. And in chapter 10, our passage from last week, in chapter 10 and verse 23, 10:23, we see the same thing. He quotes them, everything is permissible. But he, he again corrects them, but not everything is beneficial. And then yet again in the same verse, chapter 10, verse 23, everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. You see, the Corinthians, or at least some of them, felt that they had spiritually arrived. They were convinced that they had spiritual authority, spiritual rights, spiritual freedoms. Everything was permissible for them. Immorality, lawsuits, visiting prostitutes, divorce, idolatry, everything was permissible including wearing or not wearing whatever they liked when they gathered in church and when they prayed and when they prophesied. Our passage tonight is part of a bigger pattern. And so you see, as Paul corrects them, he's doing more than correcting their dress sense. He's correcting their arrogance. He's correcting their abuse of Christian freedom. He's correcting their spiritual understanding of a far deeper and more significant issue than what you wear on your head. So what's the issue on Paul's agenda? Well, it's the relationship between men and women within a church family. We can see that in Paul's starting point in verse 3. Verse 3. Now I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. The surface issue was participating in church with your head covered or uncovered. But the deeper issue that Paul immediately identifies is the relationship between men and women and Christ and God. Now I need to mention here that some of our translations have man and woman, while others have husband and wife. The word that Paul used when he first wrote the letter in ancient Greek can actually mean either. It makes a bit of a difference in terms of which the application um, 
the application makes a difference which one you choose. I'm sticking, though, with the broader meaning of man and woman, which obviously includes husband and wife, but not exclusively so. Okay? Paul is addressing the relationship between men and women in church. Now, of course, our difficulty is the link between that and what they wore or didn't wear on their head. But as we'll see as we look more closely at the passage, headgear was a very obvious and potent symbol for the Corinthians in their culture. Clearly within their culture, having your head covered or uncovered bore great symbolic meaning. Clothes always worked like that in any culture, really, when you think about it. Clothes generally symbolise all sorts of things. Our clothes say things. I wear my rooster's jersey as a deliberate symbol that they're my team and I'm a winner. <laughs> Except for today. I wore, I wore a tie to Hugh's funeral on Thursday as a symbol of my respect for Hugh and his family. When you see someone wearing a beanie pulled down low over their head in the middle of summer, you know something about them too, don't you? <laughs> and when you notice someone with a ring on their finger, on a particular finger, you can often tell whether they're engaged or married. Clothes and jewellery generally bear symbolic significance in any culture. It's just that in different cultures, they bear different meanings. So we ought not to be too surprised that the link between gender and headgear in first century Corinth is a bit blurry to us. It doesn't really matter because that's not the real issue, you see. The real issue is how God intends men and women to relate in church. And that, of course, does matter to us. Well, that's enough of a start, really, in identifying the issue. Let's consider together Paul's correction. So point two on your outline and verse three. I'll read it again. Now, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Paul begins his correction with a theological statement of the way things are. It's a foundational statement for the rest of the passage. But of course, it's also a really confronting passage in our culture, isn't it? Headship, in particular male headship, is not a very popular concept today. It seems to be a concept that puts women down and makes them less valuable than men. For many, they read a phrase like, and the head of the woman is man, and they, what they picture in their mind is some male slob being waited on hand and foot by a downtrodden woman who only speaks when spoken to and then only to be ignored. Because of our society and our, and our culture, we are instantly suspicious of this idea of male headship. And perhaps for you, and especially if you're a woman, perhaps already you can sense those negative emotions stirring. And look, I realise as a male, I need to be very careful and sensitive in the way that we treat this passage together. I want to be faithful to God whose word it is, but I also want to be loving, especially to my sisters, in the way I teach this truth. So what's Paul mean here in verse 3? By using the word head, Paul is referring to an order of authority. Paul is teaching that within creation, there is an order that exists within relationships. Christ has been placed in authority over man and man has been placed in authority over woman. Now let me quickly point out that for Paul, there is no link at all, no link at all between authority and value. 
Now, I know that we almost instinctively think of the person who has more authority as having more value. The, the, the one in authority is more important than the one who isn't. That the person in charge is more important than the person who's not. That is a nonsense for Paul. Okay? He has no concept of that. That's our problem, not his. And we can see how foolish that is by what he writes at the end of verse 3. End of verse 3, he says, and the head of Christ is God. So what he's saying is Christ, the Son of God, submits to his Father. But that submission, that headship, that's got nothing to do with value, has it? Christ is not inferior to God the Father. There is no inequality within God, but there is order, there is headship, there is authority. The Father sends the Son. The Son submits to the Father. Both the Father and the Son send the Spirit. Perfect equality, no inferiority, but distinction and order and headship. So if when you read that the head of the woman is man, if you hear the apostle saying, well, women are inferior to men, women aren't equal to men, you are completely mishearing him, completely mishearing him. There is a difference in authority, but not in value or meaning or equality. The relationship within God testifies to that. And of course, we also need to understand what the Bible teaches about headship. And there are two examples that best help us. The first is that of Adam in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. In the Garden, in Genesis chapter 2, Adam had authority over Eve. And that is signified in the narrative by by Adam naming Eve. She is created to be his helpmate, we're told. She is his equal. In fact, Adam says of her, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. They are equal. But although the precise word is not used, she is clearly, he is clearly sorry, her head. As God rules him, so he has authority over her. And together, they have authority over creation. There is an order of relationships in creation from the very beginning. And the thing to appreciate, though, is that within that order, Adam's headship equates to responsibility. In Genesis chapter 3, which describes the disobedience of humanity, the good created order of God, that of God, man, woman creation, that good created order is overturned. You know how it goes. The snake, part of the creation, deceives the woman, who in turn gives the forbidden fruit to the man, who eats. See, it's a complete reversal of the created order. But significantly, if you think about what happens next, when God reappears in the garden... He goes firstly to Adam, the man, and next he addresses the woman, and finally the snake. In other words, God reasserts his created order. But the thing to notice is that Adam's headship involves responsibility, accountability. His headship means that Adam is responsible for the act of disobedience. The buck stops with him. He tries to flick it onto Eve, if you remember how it goes, but God will have none of it. Headship, as far as God is concerned, implies responsibility, accountability. Second example of headship is Jesus. In another famous headship passage, this time Ephesians chapter 5, Paul describes Christ as the head of the church. 
In other words, he is the one in authority over the church. But how does Christ exercise his headship? By being the church's saviour, is what Paul tells us. By loving the church and giving himself up to death for her. And so in Paul, Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, he calls on husbands to love their wives in exactly that same way. Selflessly, sacrificially, because that's headship. Now look, I know there are countless examples of men abusing their authority over women. Countless examples of women being oppressed by men. Countless examples of women being treated as, a, as inferior to men, of less value than men. And I'm sure that most of the girls here tonight could share of times in which they have experienced something of that misuse of authority. But we mustn't let those sins of men corrupt our hearing of what the Apostle is teaching in our passage tonight. He is asserting that there is an order in creation, an order of relationships. The head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And headship implies responsibility and sacrificial love. But what has that got to do with what the Corinthians were wearing or not wearing on their heads? Paul uses the word dishonour to begin to answer that question. Got our brains powered up? We're going okay? Good. Verse 4, let's have a look. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. What Paul teaching there is pretty straightforward, at least initially. Although I guess we may be wondering what Paul means by prophesying. I want to leave that to one side tonight because when we, when we reach chapters 12, 13 and 14, the apostle will turn his attention to prophesying within church. We'll come back to that in June. Put it right in calendar. Although for now, let me point out that when we get to chapter 14, what you'll find is in chapter 14 and verse 3, chapter 14, verse 3, Paul describes prophecy like this. Quoting, but everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement and comfort. Words of strengthening, words of encouragement, words of comfort spoken in the church gathering is what Paul describes as prophecy. And so in verses 4 and 5 in our passage, Paul states that for a man to participate in church in prayer or prophecy with his head covered leads to dishonour. But for a woman... Dishonour comes from participating in church with head uncovered. Now, the most obvious thing to notice is that it's opposite. It's opposite. In other words, the man should be different from the woman. Her head should be covered. His head shouldn't. But what does Paul mean by dishonouring the head? And why should the man be the one uncovered and the woman covered? Let's look at the second one first. Let's ask the question, why should the woman be covered? Because Paul gives us more information um, for the woman than for the man. Verse 5. Why should the woman be covered? Verse 5. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. Now, one, did, you, did you notice there what Paul assumes that everyone knew to be true in those two verses? 
What was it that he assumed that everyone knew to be true? It's there in verse 6. He assumes that everyone would agree that it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or shaved off. In his explanation, that's what he assumes to be true. It's like he's saying, look, everyone knows that it's disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or shaved. And he clearly expects the Corinthians to say, well, of course. But why was it a disgrace is not said for the very reason that it didn't need to be said because everyone knew it. It was just assumed. Although even today in our culture, for a woman to have her head shaved would be significant, wouldn't it? We might not say it was a disgrace, but we would agree it was a bit of a big deal. That's now, though. What about back then? What would Paul and the Corinthians have agreed on was disgraceful about a woman having her head shaved or even cut very short? Well, the most likely reason is the most obvious one. It was disgraceful because it made her look like a man. It blurred the distinction between her as a woman and the men around her. It was a disgrace to her as a woman. In fact, Paul says something similar later in verse 13. Come with me down to verse 13. Verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Doesn't the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? So Paul says, in a woman, long hair is her glory. Paul says it is her honour because it marks her out as a woman. And so for a man to have long hair, that would be a disgrace to him because it would make him look like a woman. But for a woman, long hair, glory. And look at, how end, look at how Paul ends verse 15. Verse 15. For long hair is given to her as a covering. Ching, ching. There's the link for Paul in this controversy. For Paul in Corinth, back there in the first century, the wearing of long hair marked someone out as a woman in the same way that wearing a head covering did. Now, we might not fully appreciate the link because of our distance in time and geography, but Paul clearly assumed that the Corinthians would know exactly what he was talking about. And so in verse 13, he says, judge for yourselves. The wearing of a head covering, like having long hair, was a distinctive mark of a woman. And that's why back in verse 5, the apostle equates a woman not covering her head with having her hair shaved off, a disgrace a dishonour, because it blurred her distinctiveness as a woman from the men. It was as if she wanted to be a man. And in the same way, for a man to cover his head was like having long hair, which for them then was like behaving like a woman, was undermining his distinction as a man, and so was a disgrace, a dishonour. Remember our question? Why Why should the man be uncovered and the woman covered? because it symbolised their gender. It symbolised their distinctiveness as either male or female, and a switch was to blur that distinction. That then helps us with with the other question. What does Paul mean by dishonouring the head? Let's again trace out the example of the woman. Verse Verse 5, And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. What head is Paul talking about? There are two options, really. Her own head, her physical head, and by that Paul would mean herself, or the head that Paul mentioned in verse 3, the man. 
Now, my suggestion is that Paul probably intended both to be true and he's being cleverly but deliberately ambiguous. You see, for a woman to participate with her head uncovered is to act like a man and that is to dishonour herself. But it also dishonours the men in her church to whom she should submit. In fact, it's unloving towards the men for a woman to try and blur the distinction between the genders. It's unloving because it goes against the order within creation that God intends. God has different roles within the church for the men and the women. It's unloving because it may well have been an attempt by the women to usurp the role of the men in church. And so in the same way, when the man prayed or prophesied with his head covered, that was almost to surrender his identity as a man. And that dishonoured his head. It dishonoured himself, but it also dishonoured Christ because it went against the created order of male headship. I think it's important and helpful for us to see here that Paul is still urging the Corinthians on him in the way of love. There is an overarching theme that really starts in chapter 8 and will go all the way to the end of chapter 14 of what Paul calls the most excellent way, the way of love. And whereas they were saying, see, look, everything is permissible. That's what's written on their T-shirts. Everything was permissible. Forget head coverings. Forget differences between men and women. Forget different roles. Forget headship. Everything is permissible for we're free in Christ. Paul corrects them by saying, everything is permissible but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. It's what Paul says in chapter 10 and verses 23 and 24. Look above and beyond yourself. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. For you women to pray and prophesy with your head uncovered, for you women to abandon the God-given distinction between men and women, it dishonors your head. It dishonours the men. It is unloving towards the men. And for you men to pray and prophesy with your head covered, you are abandoning your role of headship. You are dishonouring Christ. For you are failing to lead in the way that Christ calls you to. It is unloving towards the women. The better way, the way of Christ, is to put aside any so-called freedoms so as to seek the good of the others. But is it really that important? Does it really matter that much? The answer is yes, and Paul, give, Paul explains why in terms of glory. Verse 7. Verse 7. A man is the image, sorry, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Why should there be this distinction between men and women? Well, Paul in verse 7 really takes us back to the creation account again in Genesis 2 to help us appreciate the importance of what's being taught here. Remember in Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. But in all that was good of creation, there was one thing that was not good. Remember what it was? What was not good? Not good to be alone. And that's what God said. It is not good for the man to be alone. And so in Genesis 2, the Lord determines to make a helper suitable for him. None of the rest of creation was suitable. And so we read in Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to him. It's a beautiful account of the uniqueness of humanity from the rest of creation. 
bearing the image of God. And it's a beautiful account of both the unity and the diversity of the man and the woman within humanity itself. They are both human. They both bear the image of God, and yet they are different. They are male and female. And the Apostle Paul in our passage in verse 7 describes that difference in terms of glory or honour. The man, he says, is the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. What's he mean by that? Verse 8. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. And neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So he's saying there is an order in creation that is seen in humanity, a difference between man and woman. Man did not come from woman. Like we see in Genesis chapter 2, the woman was made from the man. And man was not created for woman. Like we see in Genesis chapter 2, the woman was created for the man as a helper suitable for him so that together in unity they might fulfill the role that God had for them in his creation. And since the woman, Paul says, was made from man and since the woman, woman was made for man, she should honour him. She should respect his authority. In other words, she should be his glory. And so Paul says in verse 10, For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. So because of her place in the created order, because of the headship of man, it is right for a woman to properly demonstrate her womanhood. And for the Corinthians, back there and then, that was expressed by praying or prophesying with her head covered. And for the man to bring honour to God, it is right for him to exercise leadership and authority. And for the Corinthians back there and then, that was symbolised by the men praying and prophesying with their heads uncovered. Now there's that phrase, isn't there, because of the angels, which is another one of those tricky things in this passage. What do the angels got to do with what you wear on your head? But looking at how Paul talks of the angels in other places in his letters, it seems clear that he sees the angels as active spectators of God's purposes unfolding. They are interested parties in God's created order and created, created plan unfolding. And so to Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 21, Paul writes this, I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions. So they are spectators, important spectators. And that seems similar to what Paul says here. For the women of Corinth to oppose God's created order for them to throw off their distinction as, a, as women would offend the angels who are observing such things. And you know what? For people who were so proud of their spirituality, for people who it seems clear from chapter 13, for people who, who were even boasting of speaking in the very tongues of angels, Paul wanted them to appreciate just how serious their error was. For the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. But as, of course, as we've talked about, and as some of us have experienced, such headship can be abused. Men can wrongly take advantage of their authority. And Paul, and Paul therefore, is very quick to correct any thought, any thought that he might be undervaluing, undervaluing women or making them inferior to men. That is not what he's teaching at all. And he makes it very clear in verse 11. Have a look at it with me. Verse 11. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. 
Those verses form a nice counterbalance, I reckon, to verses 8 and 9. Back in 8 and 9, Paul taught from Genesis chapter 2 that the woman was made from man and for man. And that was important because it established the created order and the distinction between the genders. But of course, you have to think too hard, ever since then, every man has been born of a woman. And Paul sees that as a wonderful depiction of the interdependence between men and women. They are not so distinct as to be totally independent. One needs the other. Full humanness, to be full humanness, to understand fully full humanness, it's not either male or female, but male and female. Maleness is only understood and appreciated next to femaleness. And femaleness is only understood and appreciated next to maleness. One is not superior to the other. One is not inferior. The man can't boast over the woman. For woman brought him into the world. And she could take him out. (laughs) They are interdependent. They are equal. They are different, but they are equal. And notice how Paul finishes? They both come from God. And that's why we must respect and uphold God's intention. God's order in his creation. For it's his creation. We are his. Equal. And yet within our equality there is order. The head of every man is Christ. And the head of the woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Point three on your outline. Home stretch. Paul's conclusion. Verse 16. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Paul's very strong, isn't he, in asserting that his teaching here is binding in Corinth and in all the other churches of God, including Evening Church. And so we need to consider carefully the application of this passage here to us in our church family. So the first question is, is it time for the girls to go out and get a hat? Well, hopefully you can already see that the answer to that is no. The head-covered, uncovered thing was just the surface issue. It was a culturally relevant symbol of the biblical principle of headship. And if all the girls came next Sunday wearing hats, it would be spectacular. (laughs) But it wouldn't symbolise submission. Probably mean they were just showing off. (laughs) So how do we apply this passage to us here in Evening Church? Well, I've got three suggestions. Firstly, we've got to be great here in Evening Church. We've got to be terrific at emphasising the equality and the interdependence that exists between us as men and women. There is never, ever to be any inference of inferiority or superiority between the genders. We are to treat one another as fellow bearers of the image of God. We are to love one another. Secondly, we've got to be great at promoting ministry opportunities within our church family and within our gatherings for both men and women. Because notice, Paul has no problem at all with both men and women praying and prophesying, and so neither should we. And when you consider it, when you think about it, it's a terrific thing that within Evening Church, both men and women are so active in ministry. Whether it be welcoming ministry or music ministry or hospitality or kids at Evening Church or 
um, encouragement groups or small group Bible studies or greeting or suppering or Bible reading or praying up the front or sharing about missionaries or organizing weekends away and breakfasts. There are stacks of ministries occurring all the time within Evening Church featuring both men and women. And that's right. We've got to continue to foster that and encourage that. That's a great thing. Thirdly, we've got to make sure that we rightly and carefully maintain our gender distinctives within our church family. Our maleness and our femaleness should never be confused or blurred. That will have impact on the way we dress and on those sorts of things. But can I suggest it will especially have impact on our roles within evening church. And so for the men, we've got to encourage our brothers to step up to the mark in the role of leadership that God calls us to within evening church. Within our households, within our marriages, within our families, within our church family, blokes, we need to understand that the buck stops with us. It's about responsibility. As blokes, we have a responsibility before God to be the loving, sacrificial leaders of our wives, our children, and our church family. We are to be concerned with the godliness of those who are under our care. And look, male headship should be a character trait of evening church. And so it's right, isn't it, that within our mixed small groups, the teachers of the Bible are men. It's right that within DPC, our pastors and elders are men. It's right that the men of Evening Church are working hard, really hard, at spurring the other blokes on in godliness and prayer and fair income discipleship in their brekkies and their retreats and their encouragement groups. We are constantly trying to spur each other on. That's right, because God has called us to be the leaders within this church family. So, men, we've got to follow the way of love. We've got to willingly put us at our rights so as to serve our sisters by leading them sacrificially and strongly into greater maturity in Christ. And for the women, we've got to encourage our sisters to step up to the mark of gracious submission. It's right that the girls are working so hard at spurring each other on in godliness through their breakfasts and encouragement groups and going to Orange and things like that. The women of Evening Church are to follow the way of love. It's right that the women of Evening Church are not pressing in on male roles. I think it's a great encouragement that I've never, ever had a conversation, although it might change tonight, I'm not sure, but I've never, ever had a conversation with a sister in Christ from Evening Church who has wanted to press in on male roles. It's always been the opposite, really. The girls here, in my experience, are so careful to want to maintain that distinctive, and that's right. And girls, can I say with grace and with love that you are to follow the way of love and God would say you are to willingly put aside your rights so as to serve your brothers and so serve Christ. For that is how God has ordered things. It's challenging, but you know, when it works, it's a wonderful thing. But it is challenging. So let's remember that God is good and powerful and we can trust him. He knows what he's doing, for everything comes from him. And if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, an ancient word that speaks with remarkable clarity into our present. We thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit who bears your word to us and convicts us of its truth and helps us to understand it and to obey it. And Father, I want to pray that uh, the things that I've uh, taught tonight which are true, that you would confirm in our hearts. And if there are things, Father, where I've erred, I pray that that too you would make clear to us. Because, Father, most of all, we want to be true to your word. We want to be men and women who reflect rightly who we are in Christ. And, Father, as a church family, we pray that together, in the way we we relate to one another, that we would bring only honour to Jesus. And so, Father, help us to follow the way of love. Help us to work through the things you've raised with us tonight, Father. Where we need to change, please change us. Where we're doing okay, let us know that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It would be a sad thing for me to know that, uh, that someone might leave tonight